This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 248, Stress. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Maybe we should have done this episode before the holidays. Then again, maybe you have just as much stress now, but with more bills to pay. If so, I'm here to help. Not with the bill paying part. This week we discuss embracing the simple truth about stress, celebrating a tiny book on a huge subject, considering whether medicine is the problem or the solution, spoiler alert, it's both, and playing a game that need not create as much stress as perhaps it has. We'll start with what I've been preaching. In the Christian Standard Version, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 reads, quote, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, end quote. Don't worry. Just don't. Couldn't be simpler, right? Of course, that's the Apostle Paul writing, and I keep hearing he's unreasonable about some living-in-the-real-world aspects of serving Jesus. So what does Jesus himself say? According to Luke 12, and 23, he says, quote, Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing, end quote. Jesus wouldn't give us an unreasonable task, would he? 1 John 5, 3 tells us his commandments are not burdensome. I believe that, don't you? Someone might chime in here and say, well, I'm not so much worried about food and clothing, but I am worried about big picture things like world affairs, artificial intelligence, the next election cycle, a possible zombie apocalypse. I mean, who wouldn't be? Well, it seems Jesus and Paul wouldn't be. Paul almost seems to have borrowed directly from Jesus when he wrote in 1 Timothy 6.8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. God takes care of the basics of this life, freeing us up to put the kingdom first, as Jesus requires in Matthew 6.33. I like what Homer Haley used to say about Philippians 4. Any object of worry is an object of prayer. Do what the Lord tells you to do, and trust that He will provide you with what you truly need. But we define need strangely these days. A fair amount of the time, the worry in our heart is over a matter in which we are offered no guarantee, quite the opposite, in fact. Political pressure, failed relationships, unfair treatment in the courts of men, all these are things we should expect, not things from which we should expect to be protected. In America, of course, we have become accustomed to such things. Perhaps, in fact, you have never known a time when you did not have such things. And the thought of the shifting sands of time robbing you of what you have come to see as your due is unthinkable. But Paul didn't worry about how his trial before Caesar would go. He was too busy rejoicing in the Lord always, as he admonished the Philippians to do three verses prior to telling them not to worry. If he could live without worry in a prison cell, you can live without worry when the house payment is due, or the kids get sick, or the world looks like it could go up in flames at any moment. Yes, I know how you may be saying right now, worry is bad. I shouldn't worry. I should pray to God and trust him to see me through. But I've done that. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And I'm still worrying. It's just not that simple. I have a couple of comments. The harsh reality is we can't just brush off the commandments of Jesus Christ that we find unreasonable or overly difficult. 
He said, don't worry. So we shouldn't worry. Maybe in your mind it isn't that simple, but don't give up on the idea that it should be that simple. When there's a separation between God's will and our own behavior, the problem is always on our end. So pray harder, pray longer, maybe get some prayer partners. Trust God's plan to work. It works in every other aspect of your life. It will work here too. Now, here's the velvet glove to go with the iron fist. I don't believe for a moment that someone is going to go to hell because they worried too much. Any more than I believe I'm going to hell because I don't love my neighbor as myself. I certainly hope not anyway. God sets the bar high, and he expects us to strive for the mark. But I won't reach it, not with regard to worry, loving my neighbor, or any other character aspect. And my salvation doesn't rest on my achievement, but rather on the grace available through the blood of Jesus. I fall short. If it's not in regard to worry, it'll be in regard to a dozen other matters. Praise God for his mercy and patience. That said, worry is a real problem, and not just for you. Think about the example of faith and hope you're trying to set for your brethren, your neighbors, your children and grandchildren. Your life will be far better off in this way and in every other way if you can implement God's plan more perfectly and more consistently. Don't just write yourself off as a worrier any more than you'd write someone off as a drinker or a fornicator. Jesus is all about mending broken people. He'll mend you too. Just give him another chance. And another. This is what I've been reading. Putting an X Through Anxiety by Louis Giglio made my list of most surprising books I read in 2023. It's labeled as a companion to Goliath Must Fall. If Goliath Must Fall is nothing more than a bigger version, sign me up. I thought Putting an X Through Anxiety was probably pound for pound the best book I read last year. I found an enormous number of practical takeaways in 59 short pages. But here's the biggest one, I think. You need to quit thinking about your so-called anxiety problem. Someone out there is likely battling high levels of anxiety. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're putting your hand to some sort of important activity, your job, parenting your children, school, whatever. And it all gets to be just too much. Your heart starts racing, your palms sweat. And instinctively, out of self-preservation, you back away. You do whatever you have to do in the moment to treat the anxiety. Maybe your coping mechanism is something that's not inherently evil, like video games or television. Maybe it's something dangerous, such as drinking, smoking, or gambling. But whatever it is, you linger in that spot until you feel ready to cope. Then you take a deep breath and get back in there. Here's Louis Giglio's position on that. You're stuck in a self-defeating and endless cycle of your own making. Anxiety is not your problem. Anxiety is only a symptom of the problem. Treating symptoms won't get you out of the cycle. You need to dig deeper, find the real problem, and deal with that. The bad news is that will almost certainly be a lot tougher than escapism. The good news is it has a real chance of enhancing your life and ridding you of the anxiety, or at least banishing it to the corner where it can be managed. We read in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, quote, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares about you, end quote. 
Peter mentions four elements in this process, and they don't appear in order, so we have to pick it apart a bit. But it's going to get you where you want to go, so work with me here. It begins where Peter ends. He cares about you. God loves you enough to let his son die on the cross for you. That ought to settle the cares about you bit. And he doesn't want you to be overly burdened and miserable any more than you'd want that for your child. So first, he cares. Then you cast all your anxiety on him. Because you know he loves you, you trust him to act on that love. Get specific about it. God, I'm worried about my child. God, I'm worried about my job. God, I'm worried about the economy. Whatever. Own up to your anxieties as specifically as you can. Then hand them over to the one who can actually do something about it. If you have some measure of control over the situation, obviously exercise that control as much as you can. But know your limitations, and that's the third thing that happens. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Accept the limitations on your end and the absolute absence of limitations on his end. Don't trust yourself to fix things. And don't blame yourself when they don't get fixed. Trust that God is in control. And then eventually you get to part four, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And note the proper time aspect here. Today may not be the proper time. It may be tomorrow or a month from now or 10 years in the future. It may not even arrive in this life at all. But in the end, you will be victorious over the cares and worries of this life. God guarantees it. Just don't let despair convince you that your situation is worse than it actually is. Giglio uses the analogy of an eclipse to make his point. An enormous problem is dominating your life. But just like the moon obscures the sun and remarkably revises the situation, so also putting God between yourself and your problem can bring relief and hope where there was once only despair and worry. I like that. But with all due respect to Mr. Giglio, I think the analogy works better the other way around. In truth, it's God who is the giant, not your problem. It's not really God blocking the impact of the world. It's the world blocking your view of the all-powerful God. No situation is too big for him to handle. Not even your situation. This is what I've been hearing. Prescribing mood-enhancing pharmaceuticals is at an all-time high. That's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's just a fact. What does that fact indicate? Is it a sign that people are more in touch with their mental health and more willing to talk to medical professionals about it? Yes. Is it a sign that traditional coping mechanisms are failing the modern generations? Yes. Is it a sign that life is more stressful today than in previous generations? Perhaps. Likely it depends on how we define stressful. Speaking of which... Is it a sign that anything short of being completely happy all the time should be considered unacceptable? I certainly hope not. So are happy Christians better than sad Christians? Are sad Christians better than artificially happy Christians? I've long since abandoned any generalizations like that. I had a great conversation with BJ and Kylie Sipe back in episode 192. Please check that out if you haven't done so already. They're quick to affirm that brain chemistry can be altered to such a degree as to make ordinary activity virtually impossible, and neither prayer, sit-ups, healthy eating, nor any combination of the above will change that. Medical professionals are in position to alleviate that burden and allow sufferers to get back to living their life. 
I'm not a doctor, and I'm not going to play one on my podcast by telling you whether or not to medicate yourself. But I do have considerable experience as a Christian in Satan's world, and I can speak to a couple of issues that come up when we turn to medicine in our treatment of stress. First, trusting in medicine does not exclude trusting in God. We mentioned Philippians 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.7 in the previous segment. Our takeaway should not be trust in God until it doesn't work and then use drugs. Or God is the right answer for ordinary anxiety, but you need drugs for unusual industrial strength anxiety. God is always the answer, or at the very least a part of the answer. I believe anyone, regardless of their mental state, can open a Bible and find encouragement there. Anyone can pray to God for comfort and relief. Yes, maybe that relief will come in a prescription bottle. God has always worked through agency to accomplish His will among His people, whether that agent is an angel, a loved one, or a medical professional. Far be it from me to limit the tools He's allowed to put in His tool belt. If medicine's the answer, use medicine. But make sure to thank God for the opportunity beforehand, and to return to active and enthusiastic duty afterward. Second, being incapable of coping with life is not always a medical problem. Feeling bad is baked into the human experience. It's part of the curse. You'll feel depressed from time to time. You'll feel inadequate. You'll feel alone. But it's critical in such moments that you treat the real problem. Traditionally, loneliness has been seen as a socialization problem. The treatment was working harder to build relationships. Inadequacy has been seen as a functionality problem. The treatment was working harder to develop expertise or else working harder to find a field of endeavor more suited to you. You're likely sensing a trend here. Working harder was always part of the process. Nothing of value is ever going to be achieved without it. If a pill accomplishes nothing more than helping you feel better about a suboptimal state, it's making the problem worse instead of better. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Medicine, it seems to me, fits squarely in the whatever-you-do category. If the goal is to put yourself in position to serve God more effectively, and if medicine can help with that, perhaps that's something to at least look into. If the goal is just to feel better, maybe you're using medication to avoid your problems and the effort that is required to deal with them. Life is hard one way or the other. Your goal should not simply be to make it easier. Your goal should be to glorify God. If that's at the core of every choice you make, including this choice, you won't go too far wrong. This is what I've been playing. My hands don't shake. I'm not bragging about that. It has nothing to do with skill or training. My hands just don't shake. That doesn't mean I win every game of Jenga that I play, but it certainly comes in handy. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Jenga is a block stacking game in which you use the stack itself to build the stack. Each level has three rectangular blocks. If it's your turn, you remove one of the blocks with one hand only, trying not to let the stack collapse in so doing. If you're successful, you put it on the top layer of the stack or start a new layer if the top layer already has three blocks. Then it's the next player's turn, and so on and so forth. Your mission is not to be the one who collapses the stack. Jenga is generally seen as a game that generates stress. 
But I want to suggest it's actually a game about managing stress. Stress in the form of friction is what causes the stack to eventually fall down. One brick rubs too strongly against another, the delicate balance is disrupted, and before you know it, the game's over. But it's also friction that keeps the stack upright. The blocks look identical, but there are always irregularities, imperfections, specks of dust. Practically anything can be enough to make one block stick just a little more than its neighbor. The most important part of playing Jenga is not keeping your hands from shaking. It's finding the right place to act, and acting decisively when you find that place. The stress is going to be there whether you like it or not. Deal with it more effectively than your opponents, and you've got a great chance of coming out on top. It's not about the circumstances you were born into, or even the skills you've adopted. It's about acting properly in the moment. And you can do that, no matter how much you may think your hands are shaking. Maybe you're one of those poor, unfortunate ones who think the key to living a stress-free life is eliminating all the things that cause you stress. I promise, and I'm telling you from 57 and a half years of experience, that will never happen. The sooner you give up on that pipe dream, the sooner you can get about the task of dealing with your stress instead of trying to avoid it. In fact, not only is a stress-free life an unreasonable objective, I'm telling you right now, it's not even a worthy objective. I don't want to eliminate my stress. I want to learn to manage my stress instead of letting it manage me. I'm all for eliminating unnecessary aspects of your life that are causing more worry than they're worth. But before you quit your job or your marriage or your walk of faith, consider the hidden blessings that come with stress. Patience, endurance, empathy, humility. These are lessons learned in times of hardship, not times of success. Resistance builds muscle mass. Challenges enhance self-worth. There's something to be said for sticking out a hard situation simply because it's hard. Philippians 2.12 reads, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think over the years, in my zeal to emphasize personal responsibility in the salvation process, I've missed the real point Paul is making here. Life is hard. It's supposed to be hard. And if you just want to bail whenever your hand starts to tremble, you'll never get to where God's trying to take you. Remember the next verse, For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. God's not only giving you direction, he's giving you power. He's shaping your will, your values, your behavior. He absolutely guarantees your success, if not in every particular circumstance, at least in your life as a whole. Just surrender to him instead of surrendering to the stress. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.